Dear Jesus, you've graced us with your presence. You've graced us by pursuing us when we didn't deserve to be pursued. And Lord, we wanna give you glory for that. You deserve all that we have to give. You are the good one. You are the righteous one and we are in need of your, of your mercy. And so speak um, to us this morning as we gather for your glory. Amen. So we've been in a series called Remembering Our Redemption. We've, we've spent 10 weeks. We're on our 10th week. This is the last one. And what we've been looking at, guys, is we've been looking at what is the overall story of the Bible. So we've looked at 10 kind of mega themes that we've seen God working through the word of God to redeem us, to pursue us. And so we're on our last week, and this is called glory. We're calling this glory. And what are we, what are we talking about? Today we look ahead. We look ahead. What we're talking about is what happens after death. What happens when all is said and done? When all that is comes to fruition, when it comes to completion. Now, now the thing is, is if you're a young person, this is a weird thing to think about because we don't often think about these types of things because life is going well, our bodies are working well, right? Everything's going as it's, as it's supposed to. You, you might feel invincible. You're not thinking much about later on, but as I talk to older people and things start not working the way they're supposed to, the body starts to break down, mortality is evident, and we start thinking about what is next? Where are we headed? What happens after death? Well, there are some other beliefs. There's some misconceptions, and so other religions and theologies, um, atheism, for example, which is the belief that there is no God, a God does not exist, is that just really everything burns. Everything burns in the sun. All that exists goes away. There is no life after death. And so this leads to um, what I would call and what others have called a theology of despair, a philosophy of despair. It leads to nihilism, which believes that it's the rejection of all religious beliefs and basically life is meaningless. So that's a belief out there. You know, drink, be happy, be merry, because, you know, tomorrow we die. There's also uh, one of the major world religions, Hinduism, believes that the soul is delivered through many, many cycles of reincarnation. Buddhism, that's similar to that in a sense, but the goal is to reach nirvana, this ultimate enlightenment through these, through these various um, cycles, you know, and we get there through right speech or right thinking or right meditation and so on and so forth. And so these are some other beliefs that we would say aren't true. And then there's some kind of interesting weird views in Christianity, right? I don't know, uh, the 90s era where, era where like the Left Behind books came out and, and everyone was like worrying about how this was all gonna go down and were Christians just gonna disappear and then there was gonna be planes flying into stuff and we saw this recently with Nicolas Cage playing the main role in this movie where you know Christians disappeared and so on and so forth. And so we're left with this kind of culturally, we're left with this kind of what, what is this gonna look like? Where are we headed? What's going on? You know, all of the self-proclaimed prophets pulling out their handmade scrolls, uh, telling tales of visions. Maybe, maybe they found some weird verse in the Bible that they're trying to say that tells them that the world is ending at this particular time or particular place. Another thing is I think a lot of people, even Christians, would, would picture heaven in the clouds off somewhere in this celestial kind of otherworldly place. Historically, there's been this kind of drive to separate completely the spiritual from the physical. Some picture heaven as kind of being involved in this never-ending song. And so some people might ask, so do we go to heaven and we just, do, is it just that? Do, do we die and then we just sing to God forever? 
Or there's that kind of belief where, you know, everyone has a mansion. Don't you want to go to heaven and have a Mercedes and a really big house? Right? There's all these just kind of things going on. And so today I want to tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give you a five-point sermon on which dispensation we're in and how God's going to come back. You know, what the tribulation's going to look like and, and are we in it now, so on and so forth. When we're, when we're talking about redemption, because that's what we're talking about, those things aren't the main point. Those things are not the main point. Matt Chandler writes this. He says, the first thing we should see is that the Old Testament views future redemption as a restoration of life in creation. He goes on. He says, on this side of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, we live in the tension of the new world being paid for, but not completely rolled out. And so in the coming age, upon Jesus' second return, he's going to be coming to restore the world. We could say, you know, he's going to restore the world to its, to its original perfection. And of course, we could say that it'll be even better than that, which was to bring glory to God, which was absolute perfection, which was absolute, no sin, no mar of, of sinfulness or fallenness. So, so just imagine this with me, if you would. Just imagine no death, no lens of people making choices through the lens of manipulation and fear, no pain. Imagine with me a world that there was no suffering. There's an old refrain, an old hymn that says, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So what happens when he comes again? That's the question. What happens at the end? Sam Storms writes this. He says, we see here that the key to the future lies in the past. That the key to the future lies in the past. When Jesus started his ministry in Mark 1.15, what did he say? He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, God created man. Man sinned. God pursued man in covenant. The Old Testament points to the coming Messiah. Jesus incarnated. Jesus lived sinlessly. He died for the sins of humanity. He resurrected. The church begins and we labor to make disciples of Jesus awaiting his second return. We see this in Titus 2, 11, 13 that says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly, and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And see this 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Storms is right when he says the key to the future lies in the past. The key to the future lies in what Jesus Christ has already accomplished on the cross. We aren't waiting in angst, just kind of hoping and wondering, hey, what narrative is going to, what's going to play out? What's God going to do? How's this going to shake out? We might not know all the details of how it's going to happen, but we know that we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus wins. We know that Jesus inaugurated a way for Christians to have full life with God. Christians are adopted. Listen to this. Christians are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Meaning, if you're a Christian, when God looks upon you, he sees his son. And he loves you. He looks upon you with the same love that he has for his son, Jesus. And so all of this points us to the reality that we have this deep longing within us. And it's, and it's a longing for a new kingdom. Solomon, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he talks about how we have eternity on our hearts. He says in 311, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so what we see here, what, what is he saying? He says that every person, when they're faced with mor- mortality, they think about what's next. When people are faced with death, they think about what's next. There's this eternity in our hearts. There's this longing for more. There's this longing for what else, what's next. You're not going to be on your deathbed and wish you would have gotten one more business meeting in. You're not going to be on your deathbed and wish you had more money. What you're going to do is you're going to reflect and you're going to cherish and you're going to remember the people you love and you're going to ponder upon what's next. What's next? We've said this before, but C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in response to atheism, he just says, you know, atheism turns out to be too simple. He says, if the whole universe has no meaning, we would have never found out that it has no meaning. Meaning, what is this longing? We, 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 we long for a different kind of world. No matter if you're Christian or not, we long for it. Everyone wrestles with these metaphysical questions of why am I here? What's this all about? Where will I end up? We long for justice. And really what this is doing is it's pointing us backwards to Eden. It's pointing us backwards to when things were good. We long for peace. We long for for lasting, meaningful, fulfilling relationships. No good movie is void of that relational peace. Is the guy gonna get the girl? Is is she gonna have her prince? Is everything gonna work out in the end? We long for joy. We long for life without pain and suffering. We long for the world before rebellion, before sin. Again, we long for Eden. We long for wrong to be made right. We look around and we want the world in which God had said, you know, this is good. If you look back in Genesis, God made things and he said, this is good. And he made this, this is good. We long for that world. We long for that. And there's this modern belief that just doesn't work. And it's this belief in relativism that there is no absolute truth. That you, can, you make up truth. That each person determines their own truth. And this sounds good to sinful ears because it leads people to be able to do whatever they want. But it falls short in practice because all people believe certain things to be good and other things to be bad. No one is a relativist in practice. We long for the heavenly kingdom. All of that longing, all of that desire for the wrong to be made right is is built into us as image bearers of God. We long for the new kingdom. We long for perfection. We long for Eden. We long for the true king. So if you would, we're gonna look in Revelation 21. One through, right here, we're gonna look at one through 6a and we're looking at the new heaven and new earth. And if you've got the Bible, you can read along. If you just want to read along on the screen, just, man, listen to these words. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor there, sh- nor there be crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, 
it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Wow. This is cosmic renewal. What's happening here? Cosmic renewal. John is saying that what he's seeing and what he's writing down is this reality that renewal is happening. All that is wrong is being made right. All the longing of man is being fulfilled. It's finding its fulfillment. All the brokenness of man is being made new. All the brokenness of creation is being made new. I couldn't have said it better. The ESV study Bible reads this. It says, by comparison to the old order that is coming to an end, the new cosmic order is radically different. A place where righteousness will dwell, where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, where death shall be no more, where the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, and where all that is perishable will be raised and transformed into a glorious new imperishable reality where the redeemed will rejoice in the eternal presence of the God and the Lamb. What we see, friends, is that what's coming is cosmic renewal. Imagine being, you know, death being eradicated. No more senseless acts of terrorism. No more children dying from hunger. No more women being abused sexually by predatory men. All will be made new. The Bible speaks, the Old Testament speaks of this being shalom. Just peace, peace. The world which encompasses the reality that everything will be in its proper place. A time when all will be made right, when justice will ring true. And not only that, but it will be all-encompassing. And there's this interesting part of the text where it says, and the sea will be no more. See, the sea historically was this image of sin and rebellion. We see in Revelation 13:1, it says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And so what, what is being said here is that Satan death and the chaos that resulted from those things won't impact anyone any longer. Satan will have no reign in this new kingdom. There will be no demonic influence. Listen to this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I just love this. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. Don't you want this? He will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. I'll be able to speak right. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, we look ahead. We look ahead to God's promises. All the way up to to today, We've seen God make promises with man and follow through. We look ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises. So instead of focusing on how it will happen and when it will happen and what tribulation might look like, if that's your thing, grab a good systematic theology and nerd out for days. But, but this is the thing. For today, with redemption in mind, this is what we know. He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Listen to this. And he said to me, he's saying to John, it is what? It's done. It's done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. In the end, God wins. In the end, God makes all things new. And not in the sense that all things become different than they were before, but rather he restores the world to its state before sin. And yes, it will be more glorious than that, but it's hard to even imagine a world as it was before sinful brokenness, isn't it? It's hard to imagine. 
Sam Storms writes, the redemption we will experience at Christ's return is the complete and final eradication of all sin. To the extent that the created order is not wholly and perfectly redeemed, we are not wholly and perfectly redeemed. So Christ returns to renew creation and to renew Christians. This is good news for those of you that are weary. This is good news for those of you that are tired, isn't it? If you're a believer, this is good news for those of you that are close to finishing your sojourn here on earth. This is good news. Because chances are you're a little tired, right? You feel a little beat up. Life is harder than you thought it would be. The Christian walk is harder than you thought it would be. You wrestle with doubt. You wrestle with trusting God. And the promise is this, that Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. And it's good news. And he will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Praise be to God. Matt Chandler writes, we have the hope that one day all the promises of the gospel will be fulfilled. That's good news. Let's read, we're almost done, but let's read. I think we've got to to hit up these verses before we move on. 21, 6b through 8. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's good. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, this is interesting. Verse 8, it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's a lot of words. It's intense, right? That's intense. At the second, so let's back up for just a second. When Jesus came the first time, he came as the suffering servant, right? He laid his life down as the son of God. He, he humbled himself. He didn't take over as, as king like, like all, of the, all of the folks wanted him to do. His disciples wanted him to take over by force. He came as the suffering servant. Upon Jesus' second return, he's coming to judge. And so there's going to be two categories of people upon Jesus' second, second return. There's going to be people under Christ, and there's going to be people under condemnation. That's what this text says. We just got to be faithful. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So God is still gracious in judgment. I want you to know that. God is still gracious. We talked about grace last week. He's still gracious in judgment. How so? How can God be good but send people or people go to hell or there to be a little hell? God offers, the answer is that God offers life in Christ. If you've been saved by Jesus, God sees Jesus in you. Your righteousness then is Jesus' righteousness. See, Storms says, our sin is deserving of infinite punishment because of the infinite glory of the one against whom it is perpetrated. And he goes on, he says, and I love this line. He says, our deeds do not determine our salvation, but they demonstrate it. They demonstrate it. Meaning you don't save yourself. We don't make ourselves right before God. We could never do that. But our deeds are a good diagnostic of whether or not we are truly born again. Because Paul, over and over again in the epistles, talks about fruit of the Spirit. Is your character becoming more like Christ? It's evidence of your salvation. 
Storms writes, it's not, it's, is it not, think about this, is it not sobering to think that every random thought, every righteous impulse, every secret prayer, every hidden deed, every long forget, forgotten sin or act of compassion will be brought out into the open for us to acknowledge and for the Lord to judge. And he adds this on though, and he says, in all this we are reminded is without any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. And that's why all will be brought before God. We will all be held accountable before God, but we will be either under Christ or under condemnation. So why is the mission of the church so important? Why is the mission of, the local, of local churches and of the church universal, why is it so important? Well, first of all, God's glory is at stake. Right, we know from the Westminster Catechism, we say it all the time, but it's such a great question. The first question is, what's the chief end of man? Meaning, what, why are we here? To give glory to God and enjoy him forever. We are, we are made, we are here to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. And so people are giving themselves to other gods. Effects of sin in the world and individuals is everywhere we see and look. There's ignorance to God. There's deceit from the enemy. There's deceit from false prophets. So God's glory is at stake. But secondly, people's souls are at stake. Why is the mission of the church so important? Because people's souls are at stake. As we await the final judgment, as we await this, this renewed earth and renewed bodies, people's eternal state weighs in the balance. So we're called to glorify God. We're called to invite others to bring glory to him. We're called to make disciples of Jesus. That's our calling. That's our mission. That's what we see throughout the Bible. That's, that is, when we step into that mission, when we step into that calling, that's where life is. That's where joy is. And so the hope, friends, if you call yourself a Christian, if you're a believer, if, you've, if you're just, I know it's painful at times, I know this world's brutal, but if you're a believer, here's the hope. The hope is that our labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Jesus is returning. Last quote by Storms, he says, what has been traditionally re- referred to as heaven is, as, as we have seen, eternal life in the presence of God on the new earth. God will be all in all and his people will be enthralled by the immediacy of his ineffable holiness and everything will be to the praise of his glorious grace. It will be good. It will be fixed. It will be, there will no be no suffering, no mourning. God is coming back. So practical implications. How do we live in light of the age to come? How do we live? How do I know that I'll be in the new heavens and new earth? And man, it's so simple. Give your life to Jesus. How so? I, I just can't say it any better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany and was killed by, by the Nazis. He, he says, it will always be true that the wisest course for the disciple is always to abide solely by the word of God in all simplicity. I love that. I love that. In the word we see Jesus is what he's saying. He says, abide in the word. What's abide mean? Abide means taking the posture of just humble trust and humility in Christ. Open the Bible, pray the Bible over yourself, learn what it says about Jesus, and strive to live in light of that new truth. 
There's these patterns of confession, admitting a wrong, repentance, turning, worshiping God, engaging in community. If you're in pursuit, <coughs> excuse me, if you're in pursuit, that's evidence that God's at work. And I would just encourage you to let this be your prayer. <coughs> excuse me. Jesus, I give you my life, my whole life, and ask that when people see me, they would grow in their love for you. And so give. And I, I, wanna, I want you to give in maybe a different way than what you're used to. When you see people on the street, when you see people in your, in your neighborhood, when you see people in here at the gathering, give them the presence of Christ. We, we think so often as giving as something outside of ourselves. Give people the presence of Christ. Meaning what? Meaning give them your transformed and transforming presence that when people interact with you, they feel loved by Christ. So is that you, right? Are you a complainer? Are you always down on life? Are you, is it negative? Give people the presence of Jesus. That's how we can live in light of the age to come. Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. Let's pray. Jesus, we hold fast to your promise. You'll wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We live for you. We look ahead to your return. Jesus, transform us. Make us aware. Make us aware of your continual work in our hearts. God, make us aware of your continual work in our lives. Help us to live for your praise as we await your return, as you're making all things new. We love you and we praise you. Amen.